Hello, this is episode 43 of Get Out of Rap. Let's get straight into chatting with Ben Page, who is the CEO of Ipsos Mori, more used to talking to journalists from the BBC and Channel 4 News, a fascinating guy, and really thankful that he said yes to what was a Hail Mary of a request. Enjoy, everyone. Ben Page, Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, thank you so much for coming on to Get Out of Rap. And I've seen you speak at our uh, contact centre conference a number of times. And what a year it's been. In the 12 years you've been at Ipsos Mori, have you seen a year like it? Well, I've been here 33 years and no, I don't, I don't, but I don't think any of us in our own lifetimes have seen anything like this because we, we haven't lived through a global pandemic before. I mean, so we've, we've seen recessions, although and none of them hit quite as fast as the one that we've now experienced uh, this year. So, no, it's, it's extraordinary. And it just shows how blindsided we can all be, because although scenario planners and people like Bill Gates have been talking about the impact of a pandemic, this sort of black swan event, you know, it's one of those things we tend to, we all suffer from willful blindness. So we just tend to, we don't worry about that. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, it's unlikely to happen. So we don't worry. But I mean, I personally, I'm now getting quite paranoid. I mean, it's not, not so much to do with the world of contact centers, but to do with the world about um, microbial resistance, because that's, peop that's uh, um, things like penicillin ceasing to work because we've overused them and the bacteria have evolved. And at the moment, 700,000 people a year die of uh, bacteria, bac um, penicillin-type drug resistance, microbial resistance to um, antimicrobial drugs. And so, you know, you can see a situation where, where in, a, in, in 20 years' time, you go into the garden, you cut yourself on a thorn, you get an infection, and nothing will treat it, and you die. Really? That, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That's what, that's what used to happen to people in the 19th century. And so we've forgotten, we've forgotten it all. We've got very short memories. So this is, you know, now I'm getting, I'm now starting to look in my trends business that I'm thinking about all the other things that might get us. I mean, but the main one at the moment is, of course, that 2021 has got to be better than 2020, hasn't it? It can't be worse uh, unless an asteroid is going to hit us or something. <laughs> Let, let's hope not. At least it'll be quicker. Yeah, 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 that's true. What, just on that um, microbacterial point, is yeah. there... Whilst you've been looking at this, are there, do you have hope, though, that there will there'll be the balance will be found in that there'll be someone somewhere will have a solution or? Well, we hope so. And I think it's what that's one of the thing. you know, around half the, the planet thinks that eventually every single disease will be curable. Uh, so we all have confidence in science. And I think it's one way we rationalize not doing anything about climate change, because business and the government and clever inventors will find a way out. You know, we've, we've survived everything else so far. Uh, we found a cure. We've, we, we've managed to treat AIDS, which was uncurable. You know, uh, well, it's still uncurable, but it's treatable. So I think, and then indeed, we've produced a vaccine for this disease uh, this year in incredible, an incredible pace of time. So I think people, a lot of people sort of think, oh, well, we'll come up with non-polluting ways of dealing with everything. But um, we've only been on the planet for a very short time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I think only the paranoid survive is one of my mottos. But anyway, that's not, that doesn't really help anybody in the here and now running a Merry running Christmas, a everyone. <laughs> so yeah, no, I should cheer up. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think actually, you know, may, maybe you know, we've overall balance of opinion. Most things are are okay, but um, you know, that, that sort of bias towards negative information, which we we are actually all genetically programmed to, to yeah. do, is really important for us as a species. It's how we've managed to completely conquer the world. We're constantly looking for problems, the downside and solving them. Uh, that, that's, that's what we do. Uh, but it does mean that we tend to be, with, you know, you have a tendency towards pessimism, but you know, the, the people who had a tendency towards optimism, they got wiped out uh, <laughs> a long time ago because when the saber-toothed tiger came into the room, into the cave, they didn't skedaddle. Uh, they were eaten and uh, all of the people yeah. who are a bit paranoid uh, and pretty fast moving at the slightest sign of danger, we're still here. They thought, oh, look, that's a cuddly pet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They're not, they're not here anymore. So we're all the product of a massive genetic experiment, actually. And that means that's why we're constantly interested in bad news, threats, uh, and anything else. And uh, I, there, is, there is something in that. But you've got to get the balance right, of course. 
Just going back to that, you raised a couple of interesting points there around um, this kind of belief and faith in experts and science. Do you see that because very much the year prior to that, people actually campaigned on not listening to experts to, to suit their cause? So do you find, has that kind of, that's come back and there's going to be stress? Well, there's, it hasn't ever gone away, to be honest. We've been tracking the trustworthiness of different professions in uh, Britain since 1983. And um, over that period, the only quote-unquote profession that has seen a substantial decline in trustworthiness is the clergy and priests, and we can talk about some of their well-aired problems. Mm. Uh, and actually, trust in scientists, professors... Uh, has gone has been rising throughout this period, and so we trust science more than ever actually and although we don 't trust politicians, we trust them we never ever did, so we trust them about as little as we trusted them in one thousand nine hundred and eighty three so this thing about not trusting experts and i think uh, I think in the same way that mrs Thatcher said that is, is quoted as having said there is no such thing as society, I think michael gove in, in fairness to michael gove he wasn 't saying you know you don 't want a pilot to fly your plane, anybody can do it. Um, he doesn't know anything or the governor of the Bank of England knows nothing. He, I, I think it's probably been slightly quoted out of, out of context, but no, and it's, it's that, it's that anti-elite, uh, you know, sort of sentiment that was so, is so strong in, in, in voting for Brexit, in voting for Donald Trump in America and for people who, and this is, this does apply to anybody running a business for people whose customers are not expecting life to get better and are expecting life to get worse. And that's now 45, that before the pandemic, that was 45% of the population. There is a widespread feeling in Western democracies that the people in charge clearly don't know best because all of the things that I was, you know, I've expected to happen generation after generation, each generation getting richer than the one before, have suddenly sort of, you know, in the, 20, in the 21st century, that has stopped and even gone into reverse for a lot of people. And that means, you know, that they say they know this, that and the other. Well, I'll, I'll show them. I mean, that's why Take Back Control was such a powerful uh, message in, um, in the 2016 referendum. And of course, get Brexit done, although we're not quite getting Brexit done. But anyway, we'll see. It was so powerful in 2019. It is, it is this sense of powerlessness. But this re really important psychological effect that Britain and America and France and Europe, but not Asia, uh, but Europe and America suffer from, which is that the future we were promised is not arriving. Mm. And that makes people cross and want to blame somebody, which ultimately is what populism is. So that anti-elite, anti-expert thing is there. But actually, when you get into the detail of it, people actually trust experts as much, if, if not more, than they ever did. And they, you know, and they want to look at the popularity of uh, the, you know, the deputy chief medical officer. Yeah. I mean, and Chris Whitty, despite his problems in having to stand up with Boris uh, mm. in, in press conferences, is still more trusted than any politician. Wow. Does it um, personally, how do you feel personally when you're watching the news and things like that are kind of reported and you know the detail and the nuance behind it when when the news who still with journalistic integrity at, the, at its core purport to talk for the country and you kind of you have access to stats around the, how the country in inverted commas is is feeling about a particular issue yeah i mean i the one thing i'd say and this is no disrespect to all my friends who are journalists but the more you know about an issue and i suspect you'd find that in your own especially you know people in their own specialist fields listening to this will also i hope agree with me the more you know about an issue the more errors you tend to find in any journalist trying to report it and mm. maybe not in the technical press but in the in the mainstream media the more you know about an issue the more if, it, if a journalist just comes on something they really you know they aren't going to have any they aren't going to have in-depth knowledge so i've always found that that you know the more the more you know about something the less the less accurate the the papers are likely to be but i think i mean you know the other the other challenge is how do you in the media represent um the views of a country when actually countries are quite divided our, our pop one of the challenges in serving this country whether you're a business or, or politicians is and, in, and it's true for many western countries we've become more and more heterogeneous more and more diverse you know in, in all sorts of ways i mean a third of the children at school in britain today are black asian or minority ethnic and so their experiences the views of people in their 20s about what is right on 
are now completely different than the views of somebody of my generation. I'm 55. And so these, and that's partly because as a country, we live much longer. So you've got longer, you know, it's, if you're going to live to be 100, which a lot of people who are alive today have a good chance of doing if they look after themselves, you know, your teenage years become a very long time, you know, away. Whereas if you die at 50, which was the average age of death at the beginning of the last century, um, your teenage years, you could probably, you know, they weren't, they weren't quite so far away. And even when you look at income distribution, and this is, another, you know, again, people on the call will know, but if you look at Britain in the 1960s, um, its income distribution is like a sort of, is like Mount Everest. It's very steep and clustered around a single point. And so there are rich and there are very poor people and there are very rich people, but most people are around this sort of mountain, if you can think of that on a yeah. chart. And now Britain's wealth spread out over its population. Obviously, everybody is richer than the 1960s, pretty much. But in terms of its distribution, we look more like the Lake District. There aren't any mountains. It's all these sort of hills and it stretches on for miles. So you've got if you compare 1963 and you, if you can do that in your mind, 1963 is like Mount Everest. And then you're overlaying on top of that the whole of the Lake District, which sort of stretches out for miles. So you've got people on incomes two, three, four times more than the average income and many more of them as a percentage of the total than than there was the was the case in the 19 in 1960s and yet you're trying to please all of these different lived experiences and trying to understand them so it makes my job endlessly fascinating but it does mean the you know the country is more diverse and that means one size fits all becomes ever harder it's partly and that's partly why our politics in some ways is so fractious and i guess as people providing business and thinking about that demographic spread as their as customers it always fascinates me that when people talk about customers it's like they're talking about a separate entity to to either yes, i always find that funny and we talk about the consumer people in business keep on talking about the consumer as though it's sort of some species out there when they mean people don't they i, I always find that weird as though i sort of oh today i'll be a consumer and tomorrow i'll vote and be a citizen yeah, and yeah i find that a bit i find that quite amusing the same. I've always sat in meetings talking about our customers like they are a separate <laughs> bar-bellied vlarts from Dr. Yeah. Zeus or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when you think about that kind of more, that wider spread, what would be your kind of take or what information do you have around how, what are going to be the key drivers for people next year that businesses should be mindful of? Well, I mean, some some things, fortunately, you can see changing across the entire population. So this year, of course, has been the year of Zoom calls like this one, and it's been the year of the disease, but it's also been the year of Black Lives Matter. We had the highest ever level of anxiety about race relations in Britain because of the murder of George Floyd in America. And I think the virus has focused our attention on inequalities in our society. Eight out of 10 people say they don't want to go back to exactly how things were before the pandemic. And so we've seen a massive surge in the proportion of people who say they want to buy from brands who share their values in Britain. That's gone up from 56% to 72%. We've seen a rise in the proportion of people who want bosses to speak out uh, on social issues. That's gone up from 62% to 68%. And I think that the Ferrari around the Sainsbury's Christmas advert, where there's a black family talking about the gravy and all of this stuff. And of course, you then get loads of racist trolls, and there are plenty of racist people around in Britain. But of course, immediately, all the other supermarkets spring back to support Sainsbury's. I'm sure Sainsbury's business isn't going to suffer at all because of that, because they're reflecting actually a modern, a modern Britain. So I think this, the purpose does seem to have had more focus and I think that will keep going next year. We did a survey for the CBI among their membership, which is larger businesses uh, in October, and we found 68% again of British business says it's going to do more on diversity and inclusion. It's going to do more, 64% said they'd do more on carbon. Now, what people say in business and what they do isn't always exactly the same, same as customers and consumers. But nevertheless, I think this year has focused that. In my organisation, we've had a lot of debates uh, around it. And I think there's also a generational shift taking place. So I think that is that is there. Uh, and, you know, that's that's been heightened, in a sense, by the by the inequalities that the uh, disease, in a sense, has focused our attention on all the people who have been more likely to die, have been on the front line, keeping society going, while people like you and me do our work in our home offices. Um, that I think that has stuck a bit. Uh, so that's there. The other thing is interestingly, um, and again, I'm not sure uh, exactly how this would apply to 
a call centre, but it will certainly apply to the businesses call centres work for. And that is a, a, a continued rising attention by consumers to climate change. So I thought the here and now of redundancies, unemployment and a, a killer disease would, would sort of turn people away from worrying about climate change. But actually, all over the world, concern about climate change has gone on rising during 2020. And again, indeed, next year, of course, is the year of COP26, which for listeners who haven't come across it is basically the global meeting on climate change in Britain, or indeed the UK is the host next year. And so there will be a lot of focus on that. Boris Johnson is talking about making uh, commitments on getting there faster uh, as part of our recovery. We've seen many other economies doing that. So I think, again, that will have a another, you know, will be a, a source of continued focus uh, in 2021. I find that reassuring, actually. It's kind of mirrors the same you talk about debates within your organisation. We've had the same ones when it came to diversity and equality. And I think that challenge is welcomed because we, you know, we thought we were on top of things. And to have our team members saying, no, we need you to be more, like you say, more active, more vocal. I think it's quite reassuring to hear that people care about that and climate change um, despite, the, despite the pandemic. Because naturally you think maybe people... There's a weird mix between altruism and selfishness that people are kind of closing ranks a little bit. So those kind of stats are, are, are really reassuring. I think, I mean, it's, yeah, climate change is something that unites the world, interestingly. So we do a survey every three years called Ipsos Global Trends, www.ipsos Global Trends. You can go and have a look. It's all free to air. It's 33 countries, 22,000 people, hundreds of questions. But the one thing they all agree on is that climate change is a clear and present danger. I think the challenge is they don't agree necessarily on the, on the solutions to it. But in Britain, there is a lot of latent permission for people just to do things. I mean, look at the plastic bag tax. We didn't have a referendum about that. We just did it. Yeah. London has a congestion charge because there wasn't a referendum about it. There was a referendum in Stockholm about it. There was a referendum in Manchester about it. Those cities don't have a congestion charge. So London has one. Uh, it, nobody's abolished it since it was introduced before the 2004 mayoral election. And actually, Ken Livingston, despite being unpopular for doing it, got re-elected with 55% of the vote. So my shtick on climate is that there's a lot of permission for business. People, are, business is just expected to take carbon out of its out of its exercise, you know, its operations. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, just to do the right thing. I mean, you can't put up prices much to do, to do you know, as part of that. But uh, people, people, there is latent permission for, for things to be done by people in authority. And do you see, you mentioned something earlier around people having faith in scientists, but do you think, or do you see anything around what that means to us as individuals? Does it make us apathetic and thinking, well, I don't really have to do anything. I can't have much of an impact. I don't, well, I don't, I don't think it's about necessarily giving in to scientists, but I mean, I think it's an acknowledgement that the world is just an incredibly complicated place. I mean, you know, the last time any human being could actually understand everything, I think, was about 500 years ago. Yeah. So there's the people have sort of roughly calculated it. And I mean, now I'm, I'm in a business of only 1500 people um, in Britain. But there are things some of my people do uh, in terms of radio waves. And, uh, you know, I, I can't understand it. I mean, it's a, and as a CEO, it's slightly alarming. But I mean, when I joined the business in 1987, I, uh, because I was a sort of little cocky shit, I thought after about a year, I basically understood everything we did. But now I know I'm, I will never understand some of the things that we do around cookies, around radio waves, around big data. I'm not going to understand that. I, I mean, I just need to know what I don't know. So I think people know what they don't know. But I think... And I think there is this sort of people acknowledge that things are complex. We expect things just to work. You know, we don't actually if you ask somebody to describe how their computer screen is actually working, <laughs> they, don't, they don't they aren't going to know, but they can they can use they can use it. You know, so um, no, I don't I don't think there's that. There's, but there is a lot of I don't think it leads to sort of fatalism, but it does lead to a, a latent permission for sort of you know people to do the right thing. So, you know, with the vaccine, this is going to be really interesting next year. Um, most people say they're going to take it. There is, there has been worry during 2020 about rushed vaccines where the side effects haven't been properly checked. 
you know, so it's going to take, you know, all the royal family will have to be inoculated and the cabinet in front of us to persuade <laughs> us all that, um, you know, vaccinations are a, are a good thing. Um, <laughs> but, over, but overall, I think most, pe- most people will end up taking it. I mean, there is, there is, there are conspiracy theories. And I think the internet and social media allows people to find other people who have very strange ideas. So I think there's about 7% of people who think that the entire coronavirus thing is entirely made up. They think it's just a government scam to control us. 13% think it's a global, a secret global plot by governments to vaccinate everybody. Um, I mean, if only they knew how incompetent governments were. What I love about what I love about conspiracy theorists is that they, you know, the government is sort of able to sort of secretly do all these amazing things, but they can't even, you know, they can't even run Brexit properly. But anyway, they but they can they can set up a, glo- a complete global conspiracy to control the world or something, you know. So I'd anyway, love but, a, I'd love to be a fly on the wall of those meetings where they say, right now, remember when we go out there, we have to mess everything up so people don't yeah. think that we're behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is, uh, it is, but it is funny. I mean, there's even people out there who say they look, there's a, there's pig Latin on Google translate, which says Ipsos Mori, uh, the company, you know, we're, we're two companies, one Mori and one Ipsos founded in the 1960s in one case. And apparently we're, we're part of a global conspiracy because we're doing, um, COVID-19 testing in Britain. Uh, and you know, there's now, I think David Icke or David Ick, whatever his name is, is saying, you know, we're somehow part of a, a depopulation conspiracy. And I'm trying, rather than testing for the vaccine, I'm collect, either collecting people's DNA or I'm somehow um, injecting them with something. I mean, uh, which I'm not, I'm not even injecting anybody, <laughs> um, but I'm somehow in league with Bill Gates. Cause I do work, we do work with Bill Gates in Africa on AIDS and malaria and things. And so they say things like join the dots, Ben Page works for Bill Gates and he's doing this. Oh, look, you know, it's amazing, amazing. It must be fascinating to see yourself kind of mentioned with it. Oh yeah, well, it's, it's very amusing. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it, well, it would be funny, except it has consequences because, yeah. um, if people buy into this stuff and there are groups in the population who do, then they won't get vaccinated. Unfortunately, some of the groups who are most prone to believe these things, younger people um, are actually, mo- you know, in some cases more likely to catch the disease. Um, and, uh, you know, may die. and there's people in America who are dying, literally dying in hospital of COVID-19 and saying this isn't happening. This disease doesn't exist. Um, so it's amazing people's ability to believe anything they like. But at the same time, I think I'm reassured by the fact that overall trust in scientists is, um, you know, if anything, rising. And overall, most people, you know, believe you can't really get by without science, quite frankly. Um, uh, but it is but it is interesting. And it's this I think it's this sense of feeling of powerlessness which attracts people to some of these things and this sense that um you know somebody must be to blame it can't you know this is the, you can't have a disease like this somebody it's been thought up in a lab it's a it's a plot you know it can't be it can't be real somebody some somebody somewhere must be to blame yeah it would be my many many moons ago my degree was in um, politics and international relations and over the last few years this kind of re-energized interest in in politics and what it means of kind of like I've told I told you so I told you it was interesting <laughs> how how have you seen that kind of show itself in I guess did you see anything around the UK's interest in the American election was that unprecedented or was uh, well it's a yeah I mean although globally I mean it's because so much is at stake because Trump is you know Trump is a sort of threat to uh, rules-based international systems and, uh, you know, doesn't really believe in climate change, doesn't, you know, all of those things, which has, as the largest economy on earth uh, and the most powerful military on earth, having the person in charge of that, uh, who seems a bit off beam, does, of course, have consequences for all sorts of countries. So there, there was heightened interest in that. Uh, I, I think, again, we can get over, we can overdo it, though. I mean, British politics has been very fractious, mm. both the very narrow win by the Leave camp on the Brexit referendum in 2016, and then just years of argument and debate about exactly what that win meant in 2016. Did it mean a hard Brexit? Did it mean a soft Brexit? You know, comparing all the things people campaigning for it said before and afterwards is always sort of interesting. 
Um, but overall, you know, the proportion of people who are sort of glued to the, the minute details of all of this stuff isn't really shifting. I think if you spend a lot of time on social media, you'll get a strange idea about the world, mm. uh, particularly if you like Twitter, which I do. But, you know, most people are not on Twitter and Twitter has absolutely nothing to do with public opinion as a whole. Mm. Uh, you know, if you ask Twitter, it's it's sort of, you know, it's all anti, mostly anti-Brexit. Um, although there are plenty of other loons on there, but you know, so if social media is not representative of anything, and most people aren't sitting on social media talking about politics. Um, they've got other things to talk about, like celebrities and football. I remember um, you talking actually around the rank of which this was. Um, I think just the year after the referendum, or maybe even the year of, where yeah. you know, I think the highest it had been was seventh. Was it in? topics or issues that Britons cared about um Europe I mean yes no it wasn't I mean Brexit uh, Brexit was not the, the public's obsession and indeed until until 2016 until about January February 2016 fewer than one person in 10 in Britain said the European Union and Brexit was the biggest challenge facing the country so the Brexit referendum was part of a political debate inside the Conservative Party Interestingly, it was the same as the political debate inside the Labour Party that led to the 1975 referendum for us effectively going into Europe at the time. Um, so it was about party management and uh, most people were not that exercised about it. But when they were asked to reflect on how they felt about things they and, you know, the, and take back control when you're feeling left behind, ignored, etc., it was a great chance to stick it to the man. And indeed they did. Uh, so, but but no, most people were not obsessed about Brexit until it happened. So this kind of, I watched your um, almanac the other day, this type of year naturally lends itself to, to reflection and maybe also with New Year's resolutions thinking, thinking forward. What is there sort of in the next coming year that kind of you're most energised or your, has piqued your interest the most? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think just, well, it's obviously the pace of recovery is the, is the $19 million question and when does society become normal? And I think, interestingly, given that we've all lived such different lives uh, during 2020, I think it's been a chance to sort of reflect on our daily routines. So I, one of the things that we found is that up to people running British businesses say that they will get rid of one fifth of all of their office space. Now, that's huge if that happens. Imagine five office buildings and one of those is never going to be an office building again, pretty much. Well, I suppose business might, other businesses might take it over. But it has profound consequences for how our cities work. The, you know, the footfall in the centre of London is down 60%. The suburbs, much less so. And so you could, there are all sorts of consequences. And I think a lot of people, what, what are, what, at least what people think now, I think we have to be careful about what people think now compared to how they might feel if, you know, if we could all go to Boots on Monday and take a pill and the whole thing disappeared. My question is, if you could do that, would you everybody start jumping back onto very crowded trains for one hour every morning to get to an office, eat a rather expensive sandwich and coffee, sit in a, in, if I'm brutally honest, my office prior to the pandemic was basically a desk farm. <laughs> we had, we'd crammed more and more people into less and less space, like a lot of employers. And I know it was all meant to be very creative and open plan and lovely, but and now, of course, people have found that they can work, you know, my business functions perfectly well. Uh, well, not perfectly well, but it functions. Um, we're having a record year for all sorts of reasons uh, with everybody at home. And our, our offices need to be reinvented. So I'm very interested in what happens to our city centres, uh, you know, long term business travel, our commuting patterns after we come out of this. Do people really want to do that five day a week commute or does it go down to maybe just a three day a week commute? Can we turn our offices into things that are more like clubs? Um, and all of, and, and in our, you know, in the contact center world, all of those people working remotely. Yeah. That's working. That's working well for us with our call center. Obviously, we're we're phoning thousands and thousands of people, and we're handling hundreds of thousands of calls every week because of the uh, the very large scale coronavirus testing that we're doing, and people are ringing up with queries, etc. And we've we've had to make most of that remote, and it's working really, really well. So maybe I don't need that it's shiny that shiny building anymore. I can you know I can run it much more in a much more distributed way. So I'm really interested to see what what sticks. Certainly the digital acceleration of, of the last year, I think a lot of that sticks, whether it's e-commerce, people who didn't do sh online shopping or banking before have found have had to do it and they found that it broadly works. 
And a lot of people like me, chief executives who'd never think of working at home as a sort of sensible thing, uh, have found that that works. So I think that will be really interesting to see how people appraise their lives. You know, will we see people living in, you know, much further away from their offices and only going in once or twice a week? Be fascinating to see what sticks. Completely. I couldn't agree more. Things that certainly in our industry people thought were not possible happened in a matter of weeks on a, yeah. on, a, on a grand scale. So, And the technology was ready. I mean, I think the interesting thing is if this had happened in, you know, 30 years ago in 1990, I think we were just about doing, inter- doing um, email at that point. It would have been a disaster. No Zoom calls, you know, just yeah. phones and, you know. Fax machines. The, the, well, you couldn't. The vaccine would have taken yeah. five years to develop. Yeah. Um, if that, uh, because we just the computing power that was involved, everything else involved, just wouldn't have been possible. So you know that that's another example. You know, it's an amazing example. But I think it's changed our so often our behaviour doesn't keep doesn't keep up with the technology, and now it suddenly has, and so that's going to be fascinating. What kind of will there be something that you know straight away right now that you will? personally stick with that you've done different well, I, I find going i mean my i find traveling into the office is i have i, I think we um, we know we, we've forgotten what we need the office for which isn't necessarily just for work it's more important for culture mm. for training and for serendipity mm. so i've got to reinvent my office to cement our culture to cement training and to cement serendipity but not to have people sitting looking at screens with headphones on next to each other because that's the only way work can get done it clearly that is not true um, and, and this idea that people sitting next to each other on looking at screens with headphones on somehow boosts productivity. I'm afraid I don't buy that. And neither do 65 percent of other employers. Um, some people like my my boss in Paris. I think he's he's a bit older than me. He's 75. He thinks he thinks that you can only really work in the office. But I'm I'm not sure that's true. So I think it, that, that's what I'm going to be really I'm, I'm going to personally spend at least a day a week at home, maybe two days a week at home. I mean, I'm I lo- I'm missing meeting people. I spent I used to spend a lot of time doing breakfast, lunch and dinner and also traveling to physical conferences. I'd speak at, you know, sometimes two or three a day in London at particular times of year. And of course, how many of those physical conferences are going to take place is going to be interesting. But the ones that do will be more special. So I'm, yeah, I think, I think my life will involve less traveling, less flying, probably all those meetings. I flew to Riyadh to see some shakes for an hour. <laughs> Literally. I, I did that three times last year or the year before. Um, was that a good use of my time or there? Well, they, but they don't care, but it's certainly not a good use of my time. So now I just say, look, could we do a zoom call? I probably still, if I'm going to get assign a huge deal mm. with somebody like that, I will probably need to go and see them. But for just general chit chat, really. So I think I think business travel is going to change quite dramatically. People, you know, the, the accountants will have noticed how much money we we can save and how I'm already looking at how much of my office space do I can I sublet? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not sure the demand for the subletting will be there. But I I closed offices in Oxford uh, and Manchester during lockdown. The lease is expired. I'm probably going to get some sort of meeting space so people can come together in those cities. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to necessarily go back to how it was before. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's kind of allowed people, I was having a conversation with our IT director who, it's quite strange when he first came on, I said, you're very thoughtful. And he said, I was just thinking about the commute that we all used to do. Why, why did we do it? Why didn't anyone question it? back for the pandemic it's very strange yeah so i mean i mean absolutely because you know you just notice i mean i'm reasonably you know i'm I'm reasonably well paid i'm a chief executive but it's just the hour of getting there sometimes the traffic's really bad or the the commute's ghastly you then you know i mean just going out for two coffees and a bun i know it's almost like 10 quid or something that why would i spend that when i've got great coffee at home or that's that rather sort of crap lunch you know, you suddenly notice it adds up. And actually some of the young people who work for me have said, yes, I don't like working at home. I'm in a, my house isn't perfect. It's a bit crowded, but I've just noticed how much I was spending on my oatmeal lattes every day. And I don't, you know, I don't want to go back to doing that. You mentioned as well earlier around the kind of, what can this do to the change in city centres? I guess if you combine that with the pressure that the retail sector... Absolutely. 
is I mean, I think you've got you're going back to it may be the reinvention of cities. I mean, we mustn't write off places like London because it's survived world wars, pestilence, famine, fires, plague, etc. Cities, people want to be together in cities, but there is a you know you could see a scenario where actually all those offices there is there aren't enough um, Hong Kong people and the Singaporean people to buy flats in these office in these office buildings that get converted into million pound flats. So actually, maybe. Uh, our property sent, sent, you know, London prices. I hope not because I've got an expensive house in central London, but um, you could see a scenario where they actually become cheaper and people, you know, live there um, and you have more, you know, it's a more sort of easy, it's less, it's more mixed use, I suppose. I mean, there will still be, you know, Regent Street, etc. will still be these amazing shops of amazing shop windows because that's the experiential side of shopping, mm-hmm. which is a trend. And I think the key thing is where, where trends were already going on. So re- bad retailers were already dying out. They were being eaten alive. And this has just put the nail in the coffin, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, BHS had already gone. Woolworths had gone. Uh, now Arcadia and Debenhams. Well, you know, how many people are going to be mourning them? The reason they're going is because we didn't, you know, yeah. we didn't buy from them. Uh, and so, but the, but the experiential element of shopping will still be there and it will just, it will, it will just be different. Uh, but I can, so I can see more people living less, perhaps less commuting, but more people actually living in city centers. But that's one scenario, less, you know, and smaller offices distributed potentially rather than having it all clustered together. But who knows? I think the one thing I would say, Martin, is that most predictions are wrong. Um, uh, Philip Tetlock, the well-known, he's an American academic, has looked at predictions like the ones I've just been making to you by experts like me. And he says that, you know, they're basically about 4% more accurate than random chance. So, you know, I can <laughs> I can predict a general election to within 0.3% for each party, which is what we did on Tuesday before the general election in December this last year. Yeah. But of course, I do have to get to Tuesday before the Thursday. And now you're asking me, you know, what's going to be happening in, in 12 months time? Well, I think we, you know, so we can see some things that look likely and we can see where an existing trend has accelerated. You know, you might say, well, that looks pretty likely. But we do need, you know, do need to be careful. I guess in that, going back to that kind of um, the saber-toothed tiger analogy, yeah. this means certainly from for the world you're in, you need to be, your vista needs to be wider, I guess, does it? Or you have to no, look- it does. And I think one of the, one of the things that we're doing is um, obviously a lot of our work is on here and now problems like, you know, how can we reduce, help reduce waiting lists in the NHS or how can I sell more of, I don't know, more of this fizzy drink? You know, this is this sort of standard consumer research type things, mm-hmm. but a growing part of our work is on strategy for businesses. And that, uh, increasingly tries to help management teams think about the future, not in terms of a sort of line, a single line on a chart, but rather a range of scenarios. And it's, it's thinking about those scenarios, none of which will necessarily come true, but all of which contain bits of truth that is a really useful exercise for management teams to think about before they go and put all the money on black or all the money on, I don't know, virtual call centers, you know. For all I know, there might be a, a business. There might be a business for some people listening on this call to, to send somebody round after we're all safe from the disease to actually send somebody round to your house to fix all your problems. This could be a really profitable business for certain people, and we, you know, rather, you know, etc., etc. Et who, who knows? I mean, we just, you know, we just don't, we just don't know. But I think planning for that and thinking a bit about that is is really helpful. If you, how do you undertake? I was just fascinated then to think. What must strategic meetings be like with you? Well, they're not. They're not. Um, to be honest, I don't think they're, they're that different because we're looking at that. We're still a PLC, which means we're on the treadmill of quarterly results, and so we're very, you know, with the, by necessity, uh, you're very, very driven to show the market uh, growth. That's the way uh, capitalism works. The market and sh- the share price and everything else depends on you showing showing growth. So we want to we want to sell things in the here and now. And remember, our business it's a reasonable size business. So. We're, we're a lot of our work is run on, one on competitive pitches so it's like an aircraft carrier really you're in a, in the control room at an airport and there's some you know there's briefs coming in every minute there's briefs leaving every minute i mean we've got six thousand clients or something and uh, you're constantly sort of sensing and, and looking at it but i think further out you start to say um uh, you know, will we, uh, what, what will we be, you know, how much of our work will be about actually asking questions in the future and how much will we just managing data from other sources? 
uh, how much of our business will be about just using film footage to look at what people are doing and using how how quickly will AI uh, mean that um, you know actually our clients have AI we have AI their AI talks to our AI our AI does the survey our, develops the questions I mean we're already doing bits of this so the computer works out the questions that need to be asked it, it can literally then launch a survey to, to thousands of people all over the world. It can then work out what the answers mean and then send it to the other computer. I mean, you can see the slowest part in any of this process won't, won't, will just be the people ask, answering the questions uh, or indeed just, you know, not even answering the questions maybe. So you could see that. But of course, the question then is how quickly what's called general AI rather than dumb AI um, you know, happens. And that's, again, unknown. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that DeepMind, who are one of our clients, they're an AI business owned by Google. Some of your listeners will be familiar with them. You know, they've just cracked this ability last week to fold proteins or to be able to predict how a protein would fold, which is a hugely challenging mathematical thing. They, 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 they've taught the computer to play Go. But the interesting thing about them is that they're, they're not building, they're not just using brute force, say, to win a game of chess. Their computer doesn't just work out every single possible permutation of moves, which is what the deep, the blue, uh, deep blue, which was the IBM computer. That all it did was just use brute power to beat human chess players by by calculating every single move, millions and millions of sets of moves in, in advance. What what general AI does is learn the rules of chess, and then and then do all the computation at the same time. So it's not just it's much faster than just applying brute power. And so I think that's for our industry and, and pretend, I think also for your industry or your, your, your members and your colleagues' industries, it's for us, it's, you know, how quickly can a computer look at a set of data, work out what it means and then what needs to be done. And we're starting to get the beginnings of that where, first of all, it can, you know, we, we, we ask you a question and rather than we then ask you another question that we've all thought we've pre-populated all the questions, the computer looks at the answer and thinks that's interesting he said X to that and B to that and C to that. So I'm now going to ask him something else entirely that isn't yet actually there as a question. You know, like you really don't wow. like Boris Johnson, do you? Why exactly? Why is that? You've said, you know, why exactly? What is that reason for that? Because you've now on 10 questions said you hate his guts. Could you explain why? And it just thinks up to do that. So that's this is where, you know, it's how. And so you could see that. I mean, of course, I, in, in bots, I mean, the game, they're getting better mm. uh, and, and AI and, um, in, and web chats. But there's still some way to go. And a lot of it is just root learning. It just learns from millions of cases to ask, you know, if X, ask B. But it's when the computer starts to think. That's that's the really interesting point. That's fascinating. Seems far more finessed and I imagine can just provide so much great insight actually just thinking about that example you gave if you have that kind of ability of sister the computer has well it's a, you know because market research questionnaires are often really dull you know please rank these six brands in terms of how much you like them or something really all you know how yeah. tedious how boring how shit rather why don't i you know why don't i just have every conversation martin let's talk about you know what sort of i don't know diode what's in your cupboard what yeah. deodorant do you use? Why did, is there any reason you choose that particular one, you know, yeah. et cetera. And then from that, you've immediately, it's just, it's worked out exactly what to ask you. And it's a much more, much less pain, painless process. We're, we're currently working on using um, Google, uh, Google Home to sort of say, Mark, would you like an Amazon voucher uh, or some money off something? Uh, could I ask you some questions? <laughs> <laughs> and so the so the robot asks you the the voice asks you the questions but it doesn't go through this and on a on a scale of 1 to 5 would yeah. you say you you know blah 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 but again we're a long way from perfection but it's but it's you know we could hit in the 2020s a point where uh you know we rapidly the the technology rapidly moved ahead and you know a large numbers of people's jobs became obviated because the computer could just tell you this is this is what you need this is what people are thinking about your brand these are the key pinch points um, and what you should actually do, rather than waiting for these people to call the call center, here are the phone numbers of the 50 people you better you should ring straight away. Just ring them now and have a nice chat. <laughs> uh, don't wait. Don't wait for them to call you at all. These are the people that you need to ring because we can tell from the pattern of these calls and these people who bought these products that at this point and where they live and who they are, that they're the people who are going to be likely to be experiencing the problem. 
calling them just as they're about to make the call. Yes, you know, so we, you've been you've probably been meaning to ring us for the last few days, but we we've we've sensed that, and so you know, again, is that is that spooky or is that you know, I don't know, but you've, we've all heard the story from Target where the um, the father opens mail to his teenage daughter, which is full of stuff about being pregnant. And uh, he, he says, hang on a minute, you know, you've got something wrong here. My daughter's only 16. There's no way she can be pregnant. And um, uh, she's no way she's going to be having a baby. And uh, of course, it, he, he then writes back to them, go, ah, sorry, uh, I was not informed about certain events in my household. Um, <laughs> and they've, they've obviously worked it out from her, either her browsing history or her, her purchase yeah. history. Um, <laughs> Do you think, given that our more home-based Zoom lifestyle, that we are going to be more open to engaging with AI um, more naturally than maybe we have in the past then? I think maybe. And I, uh, although I think it will just be, and I'm not, I, I still think human connect, we are social animals, human connection. We're exhausted by trying to do zoom because it feels like there's somebody in the room, but it actually takes up more energy for all sorts of reasons. A lot of a conversation when you're, um, with somebody in a room doesn't involve looking at them directly. Whereas when you see yourself on a screen, you are distracted by that and are worried about how that looks. And you're, you don't generally do call, you know, meetings looking at yourself in a mirror. So it's a, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird thing. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a weird thing, right? So yeah. I think um, we will, we will want to do face to face and maybe the tool, you know, zoom and we'll keep on getting more and more sophisticated uh, but I, I, I think I, I think it's just a general a general evolution of you know we've got all these people who are now using these different digital channels for the first time, you know they they will they will gradually go on evolving. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily in itself a, a shift um, in terms of sort of ease of use. And actually, one of the things that we've seen is people saying that online shopping is actually more difficult than offline. And the proportion of people saying offline online shopping is more, has become more difficult has actually gone up during 2020. And that's a function of two things. The first is um, people who aren't used to using it. Uh, and they're just, you know, they're just less literate with it. But the second is, you know, even and it's actually interestingly, young people are as likely as older people to say that. It's just all that, all that sort of little bits and pieces that you used to get through some other way, or, mm-hmm. or indeed just everything turns out to be a bit clunky. Uh, and so it's not that, you know, actually e-commerce surges, and then as soon as you're let out of lockdown, it goes down a bit. So it's, you know, and of course, we, although we talk about e-commerce, of course, most shopping is still physical. We must, you know, sometimes we we forget that. So it's. I think it's again. It will be an. Ex- it's been an acceleration of existing trends in retail, with more effectively poor retailers closing, uh, good retailers probably surviving, and um, you know businesses businesses that add value they will and dif- differentiate themselves. They'll they'll keep going. I think it's interesting how many small challenger brands are able to use things like Instagram to cut through, and you know, and some of those algorithms, Instagram's advertising is fascinating because it's, it's just so good. I don't know if you find that, but I, yeah. I find it so personalized um, uh, and, and so, you know, mostly so appropriate compared to virtually anything else. It's better than Amazon, interestingly, and Amazon know what I'm actually buying and browsing, which I find fascinating. As you mentioned earlier, it's quite spooky at times, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. I, I still think they must. I don't know. They, they do appear to have some pickup on voice. I don't quite know how that works or I'm sure if they deny it or anything. But it does It does seem to reflect. You talk about something enough, they seem to They seem to somehow know. But who knows? Maybe it's some clever clever thing based on web, his, web browsing history or something else. I wonder if you're going to start a trend, though, when we're out of uh, lockdown and we are able to go back to offices for meetings where the people will be holding mirrors taking mirrors <laughs> <laughs> i think they, i think it's the last thing people will want to do i mean i think people yeah. just you know people we we are social animals so we live you know we are we evolved living in groups of about 150 people uh and we spent most of our most of our existence has been spent as you know in that in that sort of in that sort of existence uh, which is why you have Dunbar's number, which is that's about the number of people that you can know well, allegedly, because that's how we evolved. Um, so no, I think we'll we'll want to have we'll ha- we'll want to have offices as places for really good for good meetings, not just crap meetings. I think it's the same with business travel. We want to have good business travel, good conferences, just not crap conferences. And I think really thinking about that will be interesting. I mean, it is interesting how digital com- you know conference producers have pivoted, and they can do some quite good digital experiences, but most of them are aren't, of course, are they? No, no. We started in that we started you with you talking about being in the cave. We've ended up in kind of e-commerce and Instagram and artificial 
intelligent. <laughs> it's been it's been fascinating, Ben Page. Um, thanks very much. I wish you all the best. So have a great Christmas and a and a happy new year. Thank you very much, and to you and to everybody listening. And look, twenty twenty one is definitely going to be better than this year. So happy, a very big happy new year from me. Take care. Thank you very Bye. much. Thanks, Ben. I hope you really enjoyed that. I felt so lucky to have Ben on the um, podcast. You might have heard my mistake at the start. I just left it in to show I don't really edit these. I don't really have time. I'm trying to do this amongst um, in amongst my my normal job. But just to let you know what what a good start. I got the number of years wrong that he'd worked at Ipsos Mori. Um, great, great podcast to um, end the year. Great guest, I should say. You'd be the judge of whether... It was a, a great podcast. Um, as you know, I just wanted to, if I can, borrow another minute of your time to talk about Naomi House and Jack's Place. It's a children's hospice um, that care for life-limited children and their families. It's a great place. It's reliant near enough 90% of the costs that they need to run the place and provide this service come from donations. So, I'm using the podcast and doing some events. I ran around my local town with my girlfriend dressed as uh, two Santas. That was good fun. I just wanted to thank everyone that has donated. We're we're up to a thousand pounds, thousand and eighty, and it's it's amazing. But I just wanted to take this moment to thank some of the people that have um, donated. Hopefully, you're listening, um, Bev Stewart. Thank you very much, Katie Forsyth, Rachel Percival. Mark Conway, Steve Davis, Steve Steve Davis. Yeah, sorry, Steve. You, me and you used to work together as well. Uh, Steve Davies, Kyle, who's Bev's friend, Lisa and David Blackwell from BPA. Thank you so much. Tasha and Nick Hansel, Pete and Linda, uh, Silka, Emma, Pete, Nikki, all from. Um, uh, sorry, Silka, Emma, and Pete from BPA. Nikki McLean, thank you. Mina um, Van Pigelen, thank you. My mate John Slater, um, Kimmy and Nick Belton. Craig Antonucci from the States, thanks very much. Joanna, Eva and Laura from my team. Jeff, Sabina, Feddy, Johan and Anne, again all from um, BPA. Judith Yates from BPA that you might have heard as well on her podcast. Matthew Jardin. Uh, and my sister and my mum and dad and someone who kicked us off that stayed anonymous um, thank you so much for your donations for anyone else that does want to donate we will be doing other events but this donation is still available just have a look on um, LinkedIn finally I just want to say to everyone um, thanks for sticking with the podcast after my kind of break that I took it's it's great to get some of the messages that you um that you send in there's some really engaged people that listen that you prompt great thought and it's the reason that I do this and it's the reason that people keep coming on everyone all guests have said that they've had great contact so thank you for listening thanks for the work that you do in contact centers one of the whole points of doing this is to be evangelical about our industry so that we don't have to say it under our breath anymore it, we should be proud to work in contact centres. We do great things. We've carried on doing great things throughout what has been a really challenging year. Um, you can do anything. You work in a great industry and we should be able to talk about it. Um, so thanks very much, everyone. Have a great Christmas and I will speak to you again in the in the new year. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. <laughs>